Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. God, thank you for bringing this room full of people together from so many different places with so many different gifts, all for your purpose of bringing glory to your name. God, we ask that you would unite us more and more each day, living out the call of Jesus to make disciples and proclaim salvation through Christ alone. And God, we pray this morning that your spirit would work powerfully through the proclamation of your word, shaping us into the image of Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to be here. Anybody still try and take Hamblin Road off of the highway? Realize it's closed? I sent you an email. I did. Um, there's still a few people trying to weave their way through the neighborhood as I speak. So... Make sure you all turn and look when they walk in, because everyone loves that. Um, Great to be here this morning. We are still walking through the book of Galatians, and I know you heard Michael read that text, and you were like, this sounds exciting, (laughs) right? I mean, like sometimes you get a text, you're like, oh, okay. So that's all right if you felt that way. We've got our work cut out for us this morning. It's a long text, and as you heard, kind of like last week, there's some confusing parts, but we got this. I took the lid off the cup so that I don't spill it on myself like I missing the hole in the cup a couple weeks ago. I'm getting better and better at this 11 years in. So what Paul's basically doing here in our text this morning, is is beginning to answer some of the natural questions that he knew would arise from what he's been saying. Questions like, if salvation is only through faith, then why did God give the law in the first place? And if God did give us the law, is the law contradictory to the promise God made to Abraham? They're, They're good questions, probably questions that we have asked or wrestled with or maybe or asking now. So Paul is, is expanding his argument. He's coming from a different angle, but he's still making this overarching point that salvation is a free gift of God, received through faith in Christ, crucified, irrespective of any human merit. And he's emphasizing this because, as we've discussed, these Judaizers could not accept the principle of faith alone. They believed in Jesus, but they were insisting that men must contribute something to their salvation, insisting that works of the law were another essential element of being justified before God. And the way Paul is going to continue his argument is is by diving even deeper into the Old Testament, expanding on what we discussed last week about the blessing of Abraham, which comes or came through faith. And so Paul takes us back to around 2000 B.C. to Abraham 
and then on to Moses, who lives centuries later. Moses is obviously not named in this text, but he is mentioned in verse 19 as the intermediary through which the law was put into place. And to just give you like super brief Old Testament recap, God called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans. He promised that he would give him innumerable offspring, that he would give him land, and that in his offspring all families of the earth would be blessed. And these great promises of God to Abraham were confirmed to Abraham's son Isaac and then to Isaac's son Jacob. But Jacob died outside of the promised land in Egyptian exile. And Jacob's 12 sons also died in exile. And this exile lasted for centuries. And so when our text this morning references 430 years, it's not talking about the time between Abraham and Moses, but rather the duration of time that the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt. And so centuries after Abraham, God raised up Moses, and through him, God both delivered the Israelites from slavery and gave them the law at Mount Sinai. And as you know, God's dealings with Abraham and his dealings with Moses were starkly different, right? Not the same. To Abraham, God gave a promise. I will give you land. I will bless you. And I will bless the nations through you. But to Moses, he gave the law, summarized in the Ten Commandments. And these, these two things, law and promise, could not be more divergent. In the promise to Abraham, God says, I will, I will, I will. But in the law of Moses, God said, you shall, and you shall not. The promise was about God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative, but the law set forth man's duty, man's works, man's responsibility. The promise which stood for the grace of God had only to be believed, but the law, standing for the works of men, had to be obeyed. And so, what Paul's getting at here in our text and has been alluding to throughout this letter is that the Christian faith, the Christian hope, is the religion of Abraham, not Moses. It is promise, not law. And that's not to say that the law was not part of God's plan of redemption, because it was. It was part of God's plan all along, and it had a purpose, but it was not the whole plan. Trying to summarize God's plan of redemption by zeroing in on the law would, would be like saying that the 430 years of slavery summarized God's plan. It doesn't make any sense. The struggling and suffering in Egypt, just like the struggles with the law, had a purpose. They were part of the plan, but they were a small part of something infinitely larger. God's plan of redemption began with a love before the foundation of the world and it stretches into eternity when we will be perfectly united with God in that same love. So God was working through the time in captivity and through the law to bring about that which was promised to Abraham. And ultimately, it was all leading to and pointing towards Jesus. 
As Paul said in verse 14 last week, the purpose of all of this was so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. And so what Paul does here after having kind of contrasted these two kinds of religion, faith versus work, he he begins to explain the relationship between them. Because the God who gave the promise to Abraham and the God who gave the law to Moses are the same God. As verse 20 says, God is one. So we can't just pit Abraham and Moses against each other, promise and law against each other. We can't accept one and just wholesale reject the other. If God is the author of both, he must have had some purpose in both. And that's what Paul is trying to differentiate and illuminate for the Galatian believers. And Paul's argument can basically be broken down into two main sections. Verses 15 through 18 are negative, teaching that the law did not replace or negate the promises of God. And then 19 through 22 are positive, teaching that the law illuminated God's promise, shining a spotlight on our need for grace. So starting in 15 through 18, Paul makes clear that the law did not replace, the law did not negate the promise of God made to Abraham. And the apostle Paul begins the argument by saying, to give a human example, brothers. So this is kind of like Jesus, you know, using his parables, like let me give you an everyday illustration. And the illustration is this, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, obviously, people debate everything. There's debate around what kind of covenant exactly was Paul referencing. But the term covenant was often used to refer to someone's will. And while some would make an argument that in modern times or certain cultures, you can actually modify covenants, but... The idea makes sense here. It's the idea that Paul is obviously getting at that once a covenant is ratified, it's binding, especially a will once someone has passed away. And this illustration is all just setting things up to talk about God's covenant to Abraham. As Paul says next, now the promises or or the covenants were made to Abraham and to his offspring, It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. So, there's a lot there, obviously, but we'll start with the simple. First off, Paul is making the clear point of God's promise to Abraham. Namely, that a promise of land, a promise of descendants, a promise of blessing that would extend to all people, that was the promise to Abraham. And he says that promise was given a really long time ago. And the fact that the law later is given to Moses doesn't render God's promise void. 
If the law, given centuries later, nullified the promise of God, then God would be unfaithful. He would be breaking his covenant, his promise. Just like a human covenant, Paul says, once ratified, it can't be changed. And our God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. So if the covenant made with Abraham was a covenant of grace, the law of Moses cannot supersede that grace. But Paul takes this far deeper. In talking about the promise, there, there was the explicit promise of lands in Canaan for the Jews and, and a multitude of offspring, but these promises were ultimately spiritual. God's ultimate plan was not simply to give them an inheritance of land and people, but to give salvation, a spiritual inheritance, a spiritual homeland, an eternal family to all who believe in Christ. And Paul argues that this was implicit in the words God used to Abraham, which was not the plural children or offsprings, but the singular, offspring, seed. That all the promises God was making to Abraham would be fulfilled in and through one offspring, one seed. And that is through Jesus by faith. And so we could paraphrase God's promise to Abraham as, I will give you an offspring, I will give you a seed, and to your seed I will give the land, and in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God's promise was like a will, freely giving the inheritance to a future generation. And like a human will, this divine promise is unalterable. It is still in full force today because it has never been rescinded by God. And verse 18 says, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. See, Paul is making the simple, rational argument that you can't have it both ways. You can't claim justification by grace and then add on works. You can't say salvation came by God's promise, then add the law on top of it, because the promise came to Abraham first. If we try and later say that the law is necessary for the blessing, then the promise becomes void. And as sound of an argument as that is, it still leaves us with a problem. You can almost hear the Judaizers scoffing at Paul's argument. Okay, if justification is only through faith, Paul, if a man is only in Christ and receives the promise of Abraham through faith, Paul, what's the point of the law? Why did God give us the law in the first place? You're trying to draw some line straight from Abraham to Jesus, and you're pushing out Moses, and we really like Moses. And Paul's answer was simple. He was never claiming that the law was unnecessary. God gave the law. It was an essential part of his plan. But what these false teachers didn't understand, what Paul explains here, is that the function of the law was never to bestow salvation. 
The function of the law was never to bestow salvation, but rather to convince men and women of their need for salvation. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. It's this idea that Paul fleshes out in much more detail in Romans. Romans 3.20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. 4.15, where there is no law, there is no transgression. 7.7, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So the main function of the law was to expose sin, to show sin for what it is, to illuminate the reality that sin is a transgression against God and against his holiness. The law was added because of transgression. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Until the offspring should come. And as we already discussed, the offspring here is Christ. The law was looking forward to Christ, Abraham's seed, as the, the one through whom transgressions would be forgiven. So the purpose of the law was to illuminate the glory of Jesus in salvation. Our only hope of salvation in this life. And then the rest of verse 19 and 20 are just, they're just a little bit odd. Lots of varying opinions about what on earth Paul is communicating here. He says, and it was put in place, that is the law, through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, you are welcome to take a theological deep dive on these verses if you like, but I'm not going to spend a ton of time here because this is not Paul's central point. I think Paul is simply stating the inferiority of the law here by pointing to the fact that the law came from angels, angels through Moses to the people. Right? It's like a game of telephone. Whereas the promise to Abraham came directly from God. Now, they were both ultimately from God. They both had a purpose in God because God is one. But the promise is of greater importance than the law. So the first question we just covered in verse 19, why then the law? Wonderful question. And the second comes in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God or the promises of God? It's another one of Paul's wonderful rhetorical questions, which he immediately answers, certainly not. No. Great question, no. For if a law, or if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And that doesn't need a tremendous amount of explanation. If the law could give life, righteousness would be through the law. But as we discussed last week, life through the law is contingent upon perfect adherence. So it is contingent upon an impossibility. As one commentator put it, the law 
wasn't given to make men better, but worse. Yikes. That is, it exposes our wickedness and inability to be righteous. It makes vividly clear that there's no way that we could stand before a holy God on our own merit. And it makes us look to the perfect righteousness of Christ as our only hope of salvation. So, with this wonderful text, how do we drive this home, right? What's the takeaway from this? Well, rather than telling you again for the, the 14th week in a row that you're justified by faith and not the law, still true though, okay? Rather than talking about the necessity of faith again, I want to do something slightly different, something probably less popular. I want to talk about the necessity of the law. Yes, amen. So exciting. Aren't you glad you came? Obviously, the law does not justify us. We've covered that. But the law was part of God's plan of redemption. And to be honest, we kind of live in this culture that tries to minimize that part of God's plan. A culture that tells us... Um, all about this God of the New Testament, the God of grace and love and mercy, but doesn't really want to deal with Old Testament God. As if he were some other God, some other person. But right, Paul said God is one. The God of the law and the God who sent Jesus to fulfill the law for us to bear the punishment we deserve are the same God. The law was necessary. After God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. So why? And I think, simply put, things had to get worse before they could get better. They had to get worse before God could make them better. And I really use this same line all the time when someone says, hey, I want to work out, right? <laughs> They're like, hey, I want to lose some weight. I want to get healthy. You know, every once in a while, I want to get jacked. It's like, okay, whatever your plan is, come on over. Just before you do, what you need to understand is it's going to get way worse before it gets better. Working out for the first time in a long time is going to come with a lot of pain and soreness and frustration as the reality of how little you've done is exposed with vivid clarity. And so many times when I've had this experience, the thing that I hear is, wow, I didn't realize how horrible of shape I was in, right? They had this idea of what was gonna happen when they moved, and then they moved, and it, and it wasn't what they thought it was going to look like. It exposed the reality of their situation. And that's kind of what the law does. It ex exposes the reality of our condition. Like, it didn't change. Now we just see it. It exposes sin. It provokes sin. It condemns sin. The purpose of the law was, as it were, to lift the lid off of man's respectability, the illusion of righteousness, 
and to disclose what we're really like underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, living under the judgment of God and helpless to save ourselves. Nobody really wants that realization, right? But it's essential. We have to get to helpless before we can seek salvation. We have to allow the law to do its God-given duty. And this is what is seemingly wrong with so much of modern Christianity. We want to soft-pedal sin and judgment. We want to minimize the things that God says are an abomination or detestable inside of his church. We want to avoid negative words like sin and hell because they don't make us feel good. Like Jeremiah prophesied about the false prophets of his day, he says, they have healed the wounds of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there was no peace. And we have a plethora of these type of false prophets in our culture. So-called pastors who tell you to find your inner goodness inside yourself. Be positive. Believe in yourself. Just do good. And if you do that, and give regularly, God is going to bless you. That's it. It's the road to blessing. Do good. But we have to realize that this message, that if you do good, you reap good, is the same gospel, anemic, works-driven message that these Judaizers were preaching. It's the message that your works are required to experience the blessing of God. And it's a lie. It's like everyone wants to just fast forward to the New Testament. We just want the grace. We just want the love. We just want the peace. But we don't understand our actual need for it. Jesus is presented as like a well-placed garnish on our otherwise upright and righteous lives. These false teachers saying, be positive, do good, pay it forward. That's a good one. And they talk about how bad the world is, how bad it's getting out there, so that we can look out at the bad world and feel better about our little self-justifying goodness in comparison to the real bad sinners out there. But unfortunately, God doesn't say to be a good person. He doesn't say, work hard at being good. He doesn't say, be better than the, the evil sinners out in the world. He says, be holy as I am holy. Be holy. And as we discussed last week, that's going to be a problem, right? We can't be holy. We can't be perfectly spotless. That's the point. That's what the law is exposing. It was showing the reality that we are unable to be righteous on our own and pointing us back to our merciful God who made a way through Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, it's only when one submits to the law that one can speak of grace. Just let that soak. This is why the gospel is oftentimes unappreciated. 
why so many people can claim faith in Jesus while living diametrically opposed to how he called us to live. Because they've never stared in the mirror of the law to see their utter inability to be righteous. To see the wickedness of their own hearts and to long for grace. Because we live in a culture of cheap grace. Because no one can appreciate the gospel until they've allowed the law to reveal themselves to themselves. That's the purpose of the law. To stand as the backdrop by which the glory of Jesus in salvation shines. So, I pray we would take time. Slow down. Meditate on the law of God. Look at what great lengths our God went to describe righteousness to us. To study what the law of God requires. We need to sit there, soak in that, feel the impossibility and the hopelessness, and then remember Jesus. This is why he came. This is what he saved us from, the condemnation, the curse, the utter hopelessness in trying to be justified by our own righteousness. That's why he came. And that's my hope this morning. Thanks be to God that our justification is solely through the grace of Jesus. That his righteousness is now ours through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But let us never forget that which we have been saved from. Let us not lose sight of the law which God gave to illuminate our need for a Savior. Let's not minimize the grace that we've experienced in Jesus by avoiding the righteous requirements of the law that were fulfilled perfectly for us through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. God, let this truth be burned into our hearts that we have been set free from the curse of the law set free from the condemnation that our sin warranted. God, let us not neglect such a great salvation. God, make us a people who look at the righteous requirements of the law and are moved to worship by the lengths to which you went to save us. Jesus becoming a curse for us that we might reap the blessings of his perfect righteousness. And it is through him that we have been transferred from the kingdom, the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of your beloved son, to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's Word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamblin Road in Kingwood, Texas. 
To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org. Uh...